Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University and by BBC Northeast and Cumbria. My name is Ian Wiley and the focus of this podcast episode is artificial intelligence and how it might shape the future of journalism. And we'll be hearing the thoughts and experiences of Pete Dakin, CEO of Word Nerds. His career has taken him from writing for football fanzines to teaching computers to understand humans. So let's listen to what Pete has to share about the innovative technologies and platforms that might find exciting and powerful applications within journalism. Uh, my name is Pete Dakin, and uh, I run a company in Gateshead called Wordners. Um, so thank you very much indeed for inviting me here tonight. This is a, a subject very close to my heart. Uh, before we start, a very quick disclaimer. The mistake I've made here, unlike the other two uh, speakers, there aren't any actual useful facts or things that you will learn from my speech. This is just conjecture, whimsy, um, and me um, thinking about technology and journalism and what the future of that looks like. Uh, as such, it's almost entirely wrong um, and uh, useless, but I hope it will either entertain or provoke some thought in you somewhere down the line. Um, so yeah, let's just let's just be upfront about that from the start. Um, so with that in mind, and why isn't this working? Oh well, do it manually. So um, what the flip am I doing here? Um, so yes, I've, I've had a bit of a strange career, um, and uh, and this is this is my life. 1975, I am impossibly young, thank you very much for noticing that, to now, and, and sometime in around 1990, I started writing for a football fanzine, um, and that fanzine is called Love Supreme, uh, that does make me a filthy Mackham, apologies to anybody from Newcastle, uh, you've spotted that, uh, even worse, Sunderland are 1-0 up tonight in the Checker Trade Trophy, so get in. Um, but I started that in, in about 19, uh, 1990, 1991, and I ended up doing a series of things there, uh, including writing for uh, august publications, local journalists' publications like the, the Sunday Sun, a, a regional sort of tabloid that's done amazing things for all kinds of stories and sports over the years. Um, then sort of approaching the millennium, um, all of a sudden I was making, you know, I was in my early 20s, I was chasing around the country, uh, watching football and bands and chasing girls and drinking beer and doing all the things you should be doing in your early 20s, uh, making a bit of money selling magazines every month and circulation just started to tank. Uh, we stopped making money and things suddenly became very serious uh, because football fans basically found the internet and everybody started moving online and it completely changed the way that people were consuming um, all the stuff that we'd been peddling. Um, and at that stage I set up a, uh, well, I, I got a, a book from the library called Learn HTML on a Weekend. I set up a very poxy website uh, around the fanzine and within a couple of weeks we were getting 60, 70, 80,000 visitors a week to this website. I thought, holy cow, this is the future. So I got a credit card and a suit and I set up a web agency uh, called Azure, and I ran that for a bit, uh, that's about there, um, and that was really good, sat in a dark room with people that didn't shower much, learning how to code, um, and then in 2011, an old mate of mine who I'd been at school with, this chap called Jonathan Wilson, Jonathan got his, landed his dream job at The Guardian, 
Um, and I had a conversation with him uh, in the pub, which I'll come to later on. Uh, and by virtue of that, we set up a football magazine, uh, a long form, uh, text only, no pictures, no fun, no laughing, giggling or having fun, just serious writing about football uh, called The Blizzard. Uh, we set that up from effectively our back bedroom and sold it on a pay-what-you-want basis. Uh, and then other stuff happened. I merged the agency with another agency and formed a digital agency called Dakin Story, which we're closing this month. And we're closing it this month to do something that spun out of it called Word Nerds. And that's the bit where we teach computers to understand humans. So I come from this uh, a little bit as a kind of sort of pseudo journalist, um, but not really. Um, a little bit as a publisher, um, a little bit as somebody who's interested in tech and has learned to code and build stuff. Um, and a little bit as just uh, uh, a sort of interesting bystander in this whole collision of what's happening with words, stories, pictures, and uh, and bytes and pixels and stuff like that. So I hope you, that gives you some kind of context and you can decide whether or not I have any right to have an opinion on this stuff. So um, very quickly then, um, 1989, I Love Supreme started. So I have seen in my life already, I've seen two technological um, revolutions in journalism. Um, Pre-1989, picture the scene, I am 14 years old, desperate every day as I come in from school to, to see what has happened at my beloved football club, Sunderland. Um, and there are two ways in 1989 or 1987, um, just before the, these fanzines came out, there was two ways I could find out what's going on. One, I could look at CFAX. Who remembers CFAX, anybody? CFAX, yes, lovingly known now as the Skinternet. Uh, CFAX was this news service that was text only on the TV um, that you used to have to wait for the story to go around the little carousel. Remember, remember the carousel where you, you miss your story, so you have to wait another five minutes for it to come back around again. Um, and I would normally get about 50 words on CFAX on Sunderland, depending on what division we were in. And we were rubbish in the 80s, so it was never very much. Um, or I would wait for the local paper, the Sunderland Echo, to be delivered to my door, which happened at 20 past five every day. Um, and, uh, and I would read the back page of that. Uh, I would read an article by a chap called Jeff Story, um, who wrote for the Sunderland Echo, and that's, that was my only access to news in, in the sort of late 1980s. Um, I went away one summer and took a, a fanzine with me. I didn't really know what a fanzine was. This was the one that I read when I was on holiday. Um, this, is how I, this is the reason I fell in love with fanzines. The front cover said, we speak to Pele. This is the I Love Supreme's big exclusive. It's the Pele interview. The Pele interview I found on page 18. And the whole of the Pele interview is basically, I've never heard of your publication, but I'm sure it's very nice. <laughs> this was entirely my bag. And for somebody who'd only ever read Jeff Story writing about Sunderland Football Club, and don't get me wrong, Jeff Story was, a, am sure, an amazing journalist. But... Everybody I'd ever read and every word I'd, I'd read in journalism up until that point was written by somebody who worked for an organization that could afford a printing press. And because of that, they came attached with all of the things that printing presses brought, like responsibility and having to have relationships with clubs and not actually being able to say what you really wanted to say in case you got kicked out of the training ground and weren't allowed to do interviews anymore, blah, 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 blah. And I found this thing that had been cobbled together in the back room of somebody because of the desktop publishing revolution and it introduced me to a whole different way of writing about stuff, of thinking about stuff. People couldn't spell, the punctuation was awful, the apostrophe police were going batshit. 
Um, but the, the actual content of what people were saying was intoxicating. And I, I, two things happened that summer. I discovered fanzines, and I fell in love with a Dutch girl who was a, a ballet dancer who could pick stones up and put them on top of my head, which was just about the best thing that can happen when you're 15. So that was, uh, that was the first revolution. Um, the second revolution I mentioned, uh, 2011, um, the blizzard. So my mate, Jonathan Wilson, um, he, you know, he gets this job. Uh, he's always wanted to write for The Guardian. If you're a football writer um, and you are of a certain political persuasion, the, uh, the Guardian is about the best job in the whole world. I bought him a pint in the pub before a game. Bolton at home, thanks for asking. We won 4-1. Darren Bent scored a hat-trick. Well done. Um, and I said to him, how was the game? Uh, how's the job? How's it going? He's like, terrible. I was like, why is that? And I think this was a few years ago, and I think uh, Paul has articulated just how far journalists have come with all of the problems in the last few years around chasing clicks. And the problem is when people stop buying newspapers or when people stop buying your publication... Um, and the only way for a while that people were paying for journalism was from advertising. How do you then, how do you manage um, the editorial process in a world where it's really easy just to chase clicks to try and get more money through adverts to pay for all of this stuff, which is, which is now losing money? And I said to him, how's the job? He's like, terrible. He's got all these, he said, I've got all these ideas for these amazing stories that I want to write. Um, about a Peruvian left-back with a wooden leg and who played kind of three games after he'd had an amputation, all this kind of stuff. But I can't get them, I can't get them agreed by the editor because they're not mainstream. It's not, you know, Ashley Cole shooting a kid with a BB gun or whatever it was at the time. Um, and so we set up the blizzard as an answer to that. And it's long, it was long form. At the time, there wasn't much long form stuff. Um, and it was no editorial line. It was just, if it was interesting, it went in. Um, and it's been a labour of love for about you know six or seven years, and funny enough, we're just in the process of, of passing it on and selling that. Um, but that was kind of our answer to, to all of these problems, which I think you know are becoming quite mature now and, and quite interesting. And that's the kind of that whole pro those whole problems caused by um, how mobile phones have changed the news. You know, journalists used to break the news. Now everybody's got a camera where things are happening. How social media has changed the news. You know, we sold this whole magazine just by getting the people who wrote for it to tweet about it. And we didn't have any advertising budget. And, you know, I'm not rich or anything like that from it, but it made enough money to wipe its face. So as a technologist and uh, with, a, with a penchant for journalism, this is what I'm interested in. If you think about, uh, about tech and journalism and how it's changed in... 567 years, and I have done the maths, and that's a beautiful number. 567, isn't that great? Um, so, Gutenberg invented the press in 1452, and bot all happened until about 1985. Um, there were other presses invented, other presses are available, and actually the technology didn't change very much. Um, and that didn't change, and it didn't change, and it didn't change, and it didn't change, and then all of a sudden we get to the 1980s and fanzines and the desktop, you know, that's a dot matrix printer. People out there, you might not have seen dot matrix as printers, but they were amazing in the time. As Soon as that came out, people could print in their own bedroom for very little. Uh, the whole music industry invented the, uh, the whole sort of fanzine thing. If you don't know about the fanzine movement, for God's sakes, look at it, it's brilliant. Um, and then the internet came out, and then mobile phones, and then Twitter, and all of these things have completely changed that. So why? Why has all that happened right on this 567 years after Goodman? 500 years, think about that. 500 years, that's half a millennium. Nothing changed in half a millennium. 
And then we went from dot matrix printers to all kinds of madness in the blink of an eye. Why did that happen and what's happening next? Just said that. So, yeah, so this is really a very quick sort of now, next, and future of, of, of journalism. So why did it happen? Okay. Um, you'll all know this. The reason it happened is computers and computer power. And there are all sorts of... I've got numbers on that slide, which means it's science, which means it's true, okay? Uh, and I've got a graph as well, and the graph goes like that. So there you go, two things there. Um, so you've all heard of Moore's Law, all about transistor density and how that doubles every two years. And there's various other ones about that. So RAM uh, doubles every one and a half years. The internet doubles every five years in size. Traffic twice a, uh, doubles every year. So, so everything's doubling. Everything's doubling all the time. And you get graphs like that around the computing power that humans are in control of. Um, and you look at that. And you kind of think, yeah, OK, I've seen that kind of graph before. And yeah, OK, so up until 1980, we have the computing power of one insect brain. And then up until about 2040, we're going to get the computer power of all human brains. And that, you're kind of sitting, thinking, looking at it, you go, yeah, 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 Pete, you're boring the shit out of me. Uh, meh. So what? It's doubling every year. What does that actually mean? What you're not thinking about is what doubling every year or every couple of years or what doubling all the time actually means. Um, there's a brilliant story, it's almost in, I'm sure it's bollocks, but it's a great story anyway, uh, about the emperor of China who got bored one day and he said to everybody, he said, uh, he said, I want you to invent a game for me, invent me a game uh, and make it good and loads of people invented games uh, and one dude invented chess and this guy invented chess and he came to the emperor of China and he said, there you go, it's called chess, this is a knight, this is a bishop, explain how it works. Uh, and the Emperor Chai said, wow, you smashed it, mate. Well done. This is a great game, much better than all the stuff that other people have invented. Uh, I'll give you, because you've invented chess, I'll give you any, any prize you want, any sort of reward for doing this. And the guy said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Take the chessboard, and on the first square, uh, give me one grain of rice. On the next square, double it. On the next square, double it. On the next square, double it. So here you've got grain of rice, two, four, eight, 16, all that kind of stuff. The Emperor of China said, well, this is a benign and appropriate gift for such an amazing game. I hereby grant you your wish, uh, and off he went. So they started measuring out the rice, and the story goes, by the time they got halfway across the board, the Emperor of China was bankrupt. And were they to get all the way to the other side of the board, um, the Emperor of China would have had to find a billion trillion grains of rice. That is two and a half times the surface of the Earth in rice plants, including all oceans, just by starting with one and doubling it 64 times. And that is the speed that computers are moving every single year or every single two years. That's how quickly our cumulative power is increasing. And that is an incredible, incredible thing. And what does that mean? Um, some of the other speakers, uh, Paul in particular, has touched on some of these things. Um, you know where we are now. Um, now is kind of easy. It's, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've had some profound issues with journalism, some real questions around how we deal with social journalism, how we deal with um, semi-professional or non-professional journalists. Uh, there are some amazing bloggers out there who write, you know, subject experts who write um, fantastically well and in a really form, informed way about loads of different things. Um, how newspapers and newsrooms deal with that has been a huge problem. The whole fake news thing, uh, who do we trust for news, the whole 
responsibility of editors and stuff like that. The, the fact that we A-B test stories to within an inch of their life in this constant, um, in this constant effort to get clicks. Um, so that, that news is being curated by popularity, not by interest, in a way that a, an old-fashioned editor would have done. There's all kinds of profound problems that, that technology has, has caused uh, journalism now, and we're getting to the bottom of these. I think Paul's talk was a really good, um, a really good indication of how mature that's now becoming, and how actually there are a load of upsides to some of the, the, the ways that technology has, has influenced journalism now. Um, What's next? Well, given where we are with uh, given where we are with journalism and um, and where we are with computing power, artificial intelligence is going to be the next big move in um, in journalism. And if you will permit me a slight indulgence, I just want to explain a little bit about what we do. Um, so everybody talks about big data, and the problem with big data is when people talk about big data, they usually mean numbers. They talk about numbers because we know what numbers mean. A 10 is high, a 1 is low, and other stuff are in the middle. That's kind of groovy. The problem is that 80% of big data in the world exists in the form of unstructured text, words written on... Uh, on emails, on Amazon reviews, on the Manchester Evening News website, um, on uh, live chat, on forums on the internet, on Twitter, on all of these things about brands, about stories, by journalists, by humans that aren't journalists. Um, all of that stuff's out there, and language is pretty weird. Um, I spend my life now studying things that people write on Twitter, Turns out Twitter is about the most sarcastic place in the, uh, in the entire world. Um, it turns out that lots of different people use words in very different ways. Young people use words completely differently to uh, the way that oldy middle-aged blokes like me use it. Uh, there are colloquialisms. They, people shorten and contract uh, words. Um, spelling's abysmal, again, from fanzines to the internet, you know, nothing's changed with that. Um, and language is, is vast and nebulous and, and weird, and, and that makes it hard. And because that's hard, people ignore it, and for most people, the things that are out there, if they're not directly reading it and they don't just forget about it straight away, it's, it's completely invisible. Um, there's a wave of software that tries to make sense of some of this stuff. And there's some social listening software that's already out there. Uh, and that's really good at doing quantitative stuff. Um, so anything with clicks and likes and shares and interactions and retweets and all that kind of stuff, we're very good at visualizing that, again, because we know what to do. But actually, the nuance of what people are saying, we're very bad at. Uh, it was interesting. It was really fascinating to see how people are ranking uh, authors and um, by the interaction with them. And interaction is a hugely important part of the response that a, that a journalist is having. But it's only a part of it. How are we ranking people in terms of how interesting their work is or how groundbreaking or how different from other stuff that's out there? Um, and I would argue we're probably not yet because we don't yet have the tools to do it, but we're working on that. Um, the problem with most social listening software and stuff that's come before is it requires you to know the vocabulary people use. Uh, so this is how you would search traditionally for uh, Fitbit. People wanting to buy Fitbit, and you have things like, I'm looking for the word Fitbit within a certain number of words, so collocation uh, of other things like, I'm buying or thinking about buying or would like to buy, blah, 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 blah. And that's kind of, you can see how that works, and it's a very, it's a sort of approximation. And for something narrow, like finding people wanting Fitbits, that's fine. But for finding what people think about 
people living in caves in Stockport. And I've got mates from Stockport, and I've maintained that they've been cavemen for quite some time, so I'm delighted to have evidence of that. Um, it's absolutely useless. The other thing that people do when they talk about text analytics is this. It's called a word cloud. Word clouds are uh, evil incarnate and uh, almost the most useless thing in the world. We did a piece, thanks man. Uh, we did a piece of work for a restaurant chain a few weeks ago and we ended up with, a, they came to us with a word cloud and right in the middle of the word cloud in big letters were toilets. Now he had no idea whether he had the greatest toilets in Christendom uh, or whether his toilets were the smelliest, lousiest, stinkiest, horriblest toilets in the world um, and word clouds don't help. So that's really good. Um, there is now hitting the market a range of software that uses AI to, to deal with words. But their problem is, and it's, it's you know, first generation AI software, um, that's great. But the problem with it is that they treat words like numbers. So they're using quantitative methods on qualitative data. And, uh, and they're using it based on frequency and co-location and all of that kind of stuff, which is better than what it used to be, but it's still not quite there. What we're doing is very different. Um, so we do use the artificial intelligence stuff. And you can't have a slide about artificial intelligence without a picture of a robot. That's just something that has to happen. Um, but we're also using natural stupidity. This, this naturally stupid organic being is a chap called Steve. He's the most preposterously tall Scotsman you'll ever meet in your life. Um, and he is a corpus linguist. He studies. I found him in a dusty library at Newcastle University. Uh, looking at Victorian ghost literature, trying to work out whether a manuscript they found belonged to author A or author B based on the way that he uses pronouns and the spacing of his verbs and all kinds of interesting things like that. I thought this was amazing, really interesting, but almost completely useless to humans. And I introduced him to the internet and now we work together. Um, and what Steve and our AI technicians do is they look at lots of things about, so we use a lot of AI to look at the structure of language and how language actually works um, and all of these good things about how the words are linked together and which words relate to which other words and where all the nouns are and verbs are and things like that. And based on that, uh, we, we infer meaning because we understand that meaning isn't just about the words, it's about the context of those words. And by that, I mean you can take all of the same words and put them in a different order, and they mean something completely different. So one of our clients is Northumbrian water. Um, and if they see this, somebody complaining, this water tastes like crap, that can cost them £24,000 in the right hands. Uh, I didn't know this. Water companies get fined twenty-four grand above a particular threshold for everybody that complains about taste or smell. This is a very serious thing for them, and they really want to know that. All of those words are present. This is the exact same words in another order. Are you ready for it? This crap tastes like water, almost certainly American lager. So you can see there that it's all about the context. It's about how words are linked together and then about the meaning based on that. And we use this to create three web services that we then build products out of. And those web services very quickly do three things. We have a product called Haystack, which looks for very specific things in big data sets. So uh, for Nissan, there are 3,000 tweets an hour that mention either Nissan or one of their brands. Um, more a couple of, well, a year or two ago when an American hip-hop uh, artist called Juke, J-U-K-E, got to number one in the charts and all of a sudden our data stream was full of shizzle me nizzle bajizzle, uh, which was an interesting day in the office. Um, but 
they have 3,000 tweets an hour that mention one of their brands or, or Nissan, and about two or three tweets a day that are people complaining about specific issues with brand new cars. It takes them two weeks to get that data from the, uh, the dealers. And when you produce a car every 29 seconds, like the factory in Sunderland, um, if we can find it within a day or an hour of the problem actually manifesting itself, we can save them tens, hundreds of thousands of pounds in warranty claims. The second product we have is Stargazer. This is the opposite of that. So Haystack is looking at very specific things in big data sets. Stargazer is getting big data sets and condensing that down into the actionable insight. So um, if you've got 10,000 Amazon reviews for every product like, uh, like Toby Tibby have, what are the 10 things people really like about a product or dislike about it? And the stuff we're working on now is real-time sentiment based on what humans are thinking about an issue, a brand, a story, a problem, an event, Brexit, the football tonight, uh, whatever it is. And we're, we're scanning, const constantly scanning Twitter and the internet and forums, and we're working, we're using this stuff to tell universities why students aren't doing particular degrees. We're using it to uh, find people that the Environment Agency want to talk about about uh, public consultation, about how they manage their waterways. There's all kinds of things that this stuff's being used for, um, and all kinds of ways this kind of technology is going to be appropriated by journalists in the next two, three, four years um, to fundamentally change the way that news is sourced. And again, Paul mentioned a bit of this with his data miner stuff, um, which is starting to use this kind of technology to, to, to point people in this direction. because. With AI and linguistics, uh, journalists will be able to, in real time, not just get the breaking news, but they'll be able to query it, they'll be able to find answers to questions that they've got, and they'll be able to use the internet as the world's largest focus group. If they want to know what people in the UK think about a topic, they can just go to their computer um, and do a search using this kind of technology and, and find that information out. And the interesting thing about that is, if we go beyond the situation where, um, you know, we're already, people are already breaking the news, the, the role of the journalist as the person that set the news agenda is, is probably pretty much gone. But if all we used to care about was what's popular, and if we don't know what's real or accurate or unbiased, and if this kind of technology can summarize sentiment and thoughts and ideas on the internet, then what the hell's the point of a journalist? What's the journalist there for? Um, and it's a partly rhetorical question. There is a big point to journalists. And you know, I think what we're finding is the journalists that are really cutting through at the minute, the ones that are getting most traction, the ones that are being most respected, are the ones who are best at making sense of this morass of fake news and weirdness and biased, prejudiced news sources and all of the kind of all of the ills and the people that we can trust, the people that we can go to precisely because they're not some of these things. Um, and I think, I think the very best journalists at the minute are doing a really good job of this stuff, but, but not everybody is. So that's the kind of the now and the next of journalism. I'm just going to whip you through the, the future stuff very quickly because I know we're a bit short of time. So, um, so that's the kind of the next two or three years. But what if we extrapolate? What if we just, for shits and giggles, go a bit further in the future and look at kind of look at what's happening next? So. Um, this is uh, firstly me, and yes, I do look great in a sombrero, thank you very much. Uh, this is my daughter, Amelie. Uh, Amelie is now 11. 
uh, and this is my little boy Eddie. Eddie is uh, Eddie is nine in two weeks. Uh, don't buy him a present, please. Um, and what I'm interested about here is uh, a Dell Technologies report uh, a couple of years ago looked at people entering the workforce in 2030. Um, and Amelie and Eddie will be entering the workforce in 2030. If they don't get booted out of university before then, or if they take an apprenticeship, whatever it is, that's exactly when they'll be coming into the, the workforce. And the Dell Technologies report, what they said was, 85% of jobs that Amelie and Eddie and the people in their class at school and all of their friends will do haven't been invented yet. 85%. Now that's terrifying. How do schools and universities um, and parents teach the kids the skills that they need to do jobs, 85% of which haven't been invented yet? Um, and the answer to that is actually you don't, because what's going to happen in the future is everybody's going to have instant access to the information anyway as the internet becomes more mature and there are other ways of doing it. And the people that do the best are the people that have the, uh, have the ability to... Um, to actually make sense of that data, to interpret that data, to draw lines between it, to do stuff with it that humans find meaningful. Um, and there's a whole set of skills that we need to be teaching our kids about this. Um, and the same is going to be true of journalists. So if we accept that everything's changing so rapidly and this is happening, um, what's the logical progression to this? Uh, and this is when it gets a bit sci-fi. Bear with me. I'm partly doing this just to wind you up. Um, but it's also true and weird and class. Um, so there you go, that was life starting however many billion years ago. Uh, then not much happened for a bit. That's a pretty dull time to be around. Luckily nobody was, and multicellular organisms happened there. And then we go, bum, 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 reptiles, da, 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 Stockport cavemen, uh, and uh, all the way through to personal computers and stuff like that. So this kind of, uh, this kind of, you've all seen this stuff before, and the idea is, Where's that going? And where that going is basically um, towards something called the singularity. For anybody who has never heard the singularity, the singularity is basically robots taking over the world. So at what stage is technological change so rapid and profound that it represents a fundamental rupture um, in the fabric of human history? This may sound like a hyperbole. It probably is. Um, but actually, it's not that far away. So at the minute, that's the processing power of the human brain. Um, we should be there by about 2023. Uh, we should be able to have computers that are processing at the speed of the human brain. That's pretty frightening. Um, Turing tests, anybody know the Turing test? This idea that you can, a computer can fool a human to think that you're, it's human. That should be passed by the late 2020s. Um, singularity should occur sometime in 2045. And if that happens, super intelligence, our robot overlords could be taking over by 2047. I hope to be dead by then. Um, I will do my very best to, 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 to be that way, but if not, this could happen in our lifetimes. Holy cow. What does that mean? Well, he's a clever guy. He won't need any introduction. Um, his thing is, basically, or his thing in 2001 when he saw this happening, was that we urgently need to develop direct connections to the brain so that computers can add to human intelligence rather than be in opposition. Think about that for a second. Yeah. We urgently need to develop direct connections, so hardware that fits into your brain that makes your brain talk to humans. This is clearly mental, right? This is bonkers. Anybody else think this is bonkers? 
Well, we're already doing it. So this is a guy called Bill Kokovar uh, from Cleveland. Um, he had a motorcycle accident a few years ago and he lost, uh, lost the use of his arm. He became paralyzed. Um, and there, a couple of, well, six, seven months ago, um, he got fitted with a, a little thing that sits at the back of his cortex um, and it writes to his nervous system. So it listens for electrical signals coming down his cortex um, and it deciphers the ones that are him trying to move his arm. He's then got another little thing in his arm that then stimulates the muscles in his hand and in his arm um, and it basically allows him to use a robotic, effectively a robotic arm. It's his arm, but it effectively it's a robotic connection between his brain and his arm. So they are basically, they're writing the nervous system from the, the things coming out of his cortex. That's mental. There are 50 other plus odd people using that right now. Um, and there's a video of him doing it. I won't play it now because uh, we're running out of time. But go and YouTube it and have a look and satisfy yourself that it's not deep fake um, and see for yourselves. What's the next step? Well, the next step is once you've written the nervous system, um, as all of you good technologists will know, you need a read-write thing going on. Well, the next step is then to, to write the cortex. So if you can read the cortex, you then write the cortex. So you can get information going out and then information coming in. Uh, well, we can already do that on mice. Um, that little thing gets put into their heads and connected up to things. Uh, and again, go and Google this. There's loads of experiments about how we can make we can program mice to do things based on something that's writing their cortex. If we can do it on mice, it won't be long before we can do it in humans. Um, and if you think this is evil and sinister and weird, there's a picture of Elon Musk alongside a company called Neuralink that he registered in 2016, three years ago. And bear in mind, we've already worked out that internet years are like dog years, right? Three years ago is an incredible amount of time and processing power. And in 2016, he, he set up a company and got some funding for a company called Neuralink, which is set up to do precisely this. So this madness of Stephen Hawkins that we all thought was mental in two slides ago, all of a sudden isn't that far away. And I'll be hugely surprised if they haven't already got the technology to at least do some of this. Um, at that stage, you've got a situation where you've got um, you've basically got augmented humans. You've got a human that can go away and access cloud accessible intelligence, uh, write that back into their brain. So everybody's got uh, immediate access to all of the cumulative knowledge of the human race um, via a piece of hardware in the bottom of their brain, brain-to-brain uh, -brain linking, day one full knowledge, all that kind of stuff. And again, there's a guy called Christoph Koch who's written about this extensively. Go and read it. It's mental. It'll blow your minds. So what does this mean? What does journalism look like in a world where this is happening? And bear in mind, this isn't the, the far future. This is 20, you know, this is all going to have happened by 2047. And, and this, I think, raises some very fundamental questions about us as human beings and about our existence um, and extrapolated from that about what it is to be somebody who is responsible for organizing and interpreting and translating and commenting on and putting into context um, all of the stories that, that we're reading. Um, if I can hack a computer and the computer's attached to your brain, I can hack your brain. If I can hack your brain, what can I do to you? What can I make you do? When are we going to have the first court case where somebody says, oh, it wasn't me that killed him. Somebody hacked my brain and they killed him using me as the tool. Um, if I can put a 
virus into a mobile phone. I can put a virus into your brain. What does that look like? How might I do that? What might I do with that? How do I, how do I protect myself from this? And it might start with something benign, like giving somebody back movement after paralysis caused by a, a tragic accident. Um, but once the technology is there, we've already seen, history tells us that somebody will appropriate that technology, even if it's not allowed in a lot of countries. Somebody somewhere will use it for something. Um, there's the whole thing of, with, with artificial intelligence, there's the whole question around um, where, are we, where are we getting the information that trains the models? So I don't know if anybody remembers the Microsoft Tay thing. So Tay tweets, basically Microsoft made a bot that listened to loads of 16-year-old girls talking on Twitter uh, and tried to generate tweets as if they were a 16-year-old girl. Um, turns out she became completely racist really quickly and hated Mexicans. Uh, and, uh, and Microsoft was very embarrassing. Microsoft had to pull that down. But that happened not because the, not because the, um, the AI was prejudiced or weird or racist. That happened because the internet's racist. That happened as inputs, outputs, shit in, shit out. If, if we're training models with this stuff, wh where do we stand ethically on this? If we, if we get a model to go onto Google Images and look at photos of, I don't know, um, medical departments, this model is going to come back and say, girls are nurses, boys are doctors. That's not anything anybody's told it. That's what it's going to think. Because all of the prejudices and biases and problems we have as a society um, are all reflected in our, in our kind of cultural manifestations, and AI will learn all of that. Um, it then raises questions about, when am I not me? Um, if we can replicate uh, using AI my personality, so I'm around when I'm dead, um, what does that mean about the human consciousness and some fundamental issues that we will be grappling with for about the next 30 years that we are going to look to journalists to be at the vanguard of deciphering for us. So I've been a little bit taking a few liberties to try and provoke you into thinking about this. Um, and this is the greatest liberty of all. Perhaps the question isn't, can technology reboot journalism? Perhaps the question is, can I press a button on the computer? No. Perhaps the question is, what was my last slide? Thank you very much. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University and BBC Northeastern Cumbria. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening.